You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The word for this evening comes from Isaiah chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts, Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we are thankful that you have indeed spoken, that you have given us your word. So now we pray that you would give us wisdom to indeed learn to do good, to seek justice, to correct oppression. Help us in our own hearts. Help us to understand what we are to do, both as people and as a church. We pray that you might get honor and glory and the world might benefit and know the glory and name of Christ through it all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all this evening. My name is Nathan. If I haven't met you, I'd love to. After, uh, if you're just joining us this evening, we are in the second week of a mini sermon series, uh, three weeks thinking about race and the image of God, justice and injustice. Uh, We thought it wise to take a bit of a brief topical break from our normal diet of just preaching through books of the Bible to consider what God might have of us in this extremely contentious uh, social conversation that is going around us. Uh, So this evening we're going to be thinking about justice. We humans are creatures who like stories where good triumphs over evil. As children, we love stories that end in happily ever after, and then uh, we become really disappointed when that formula does not hold. Like half of you, maybe more than half of you, hated the ending of La La Land because it did not just keep the formula. I certainly remember as a high school student at the end of a Jeff Bridges movie called Arlington Road, like being stunned. Like that, it is not supposed to end that way. We love watching courtroom TV shows, legal dramas to remind ourselves that there is right and wrong and then to perhaps even subconsciously reassure ourselves that good will triumph. And while that formula still totally exists, like think about every single police or crime or legal drama that CBS still makes, uh, the past 10 or 15 years has actually brought an influx influx of stories that are actually more complex. 
where it's not quite so clear that there's a, uh, a black hat and a white hat. The hero of the story doesn't always do the right thing. Villains actually are shown to have quite reasonable motives because of their backstories. Think about even movies like Maleficent or The Joker. And life is a messy mix of choosing the best of a terrible option or the wrong calculus that then produces worse options. Albuquerque's own Breaking Bad. Many, if not most, of our cultural stories now see the world as really complex and mostly unjust. You can pretty much sum up all of Cormac McCarthy's novels by a quote from one of his characters who said, the rain falls on the just and the unjust, but mostly on the just because the unjust have stolen their umbrellas. And so the question for us is, is that true? Is this a world that is fundamentally unjust? How should Christians think about injustice when they see it and encounter it? What is injustice? What is justice? Now, the word justice today might be about the most polarizing world in all of society. There are probably a couple of other competitors for the most polarizing, but justice, especially when you uh, throw on the descriptor on the front end of social, of social justice, most folks, when they just hear those two words, become quite passionate wherever they land. But the reality is, is that while not all social justice is, or social action is just, all justice is in fact social. Even if it's like just two neighbors who are trying to come at an agreement, settling a dispute, uh, the result of that dispute will inevitably carry implications for their families, for their neighbors, potentially their bank accounts, how they spend and where they spend their money. If nothing else, it will affect their temperaments and how they interact with other humans. In other words, this, even just this dispute with two neighbors will have implications for society. That is, their justice issue becomes social. But of course, that's not usually what we're talking about these days. In a 2000 book that I think that should just be about required reading for all Christians, uh, George Yancey writes in his book, Breaking Racial Gridlock, that actually the questions and the controversies that are immediately in front of us on the table actually aren't the thing that we're disagreeing about. It's the presuppositions behind the thing that we're disagreeing about. While we're going to tonight be thinking about much more than racism, uh, Yancey compares the differences between two prepositions, or two, two presuppositions, two worldviews, that of an individualist definition of racism and that of a structuralist definition of racism. He says, the individualist definition of racism holds that racial strife is the result of individuals choosing to act in a racist manner. So if an apartment manager decides not to rent an apartment to a black applicant, then that manager is guilty of the sin of racism. If a teacher uses an insulting racial epithet against Hispanics, then the students will suffer from a racist action. If a personnel officer refuses to hire an Asian applicant, that is another example of racism. Christians, he says, who accept an individualistic definition of racism, perceive these choices as this view locates the problem of racism within the individual, then therefore the solution is to help individuals overcome the personal racism within their own hearts. And yet, in contrast, to the individualist definition of racism is the structuralist definition. 
According to this view, society can perpetuate racism even when individuals in the society do not intend to be racist. The structuralist viewpoint rests on the idea that humans are affected by the social structures in which they live. People do not merely make personal choices. They make choices influenced by the structures of their society. Merely exhorting weak-willed individuals to stop sinning will not solve racism. Our social structures must be reformed, according to the structuralist definition. So which is right? This kind of social or structuralist definition is the kind of, uh, while this word wouldn't have been around or really taken root as much when he wrote this book in 2006. This is the kind of systemic racism that we hear so much of. A worldview like critical race theory tries to then identify and then smoke out of its hiddenness. And so which presuppositions, which definitions are right? Well, like I did last week in thinking about the image of God, let me try to distill tonight's sermon down to one single sentence using the text from Isaiah 1 that you just heard Jordan read, here's where I would like us to go tonight. Righteousness truly confronts the injustices of personal sin and societal structures. Righteousness, that is rightness, being and doing what is right, truly confronts the injustices of personal sin and societal structures. And I realize that even that one sentence in and of itself is extremely controversial. But within that sentence is very one very, very important word. I think all of those words are really important, but there's one word that is, we should really shine the flashlight on. And that word is truly. Righteousness truly confronts the injustices of personal sin and societal structures. In Jeremiah 7, God tells Israel to truly execute justice, implying that there is actually an untrue or a wrong way to go about justice. So we must be able to diagnose true injustices and then prescribe true remedies. If I prescribe a kidney transplant when you have lung cancer, that is going to make a bad situation worse. We must be able to diagnose and then prescribe. And then, next week, hopefully we might be able to discern the difference between what Christians can do and then what Christians must do. And, as well as the difference between what individual Christians can or ought to do and then what institutional churches, we together, ought to do. But that's next week. So for this week, two halves tonight, truly confronting personal sin and truly confronting societal structures. All right, first of all, confronting personal sin. The first thing that we need to establish is what justice actually is. Again, many of our different definitions and presuppositions make agreement, make middle ground, or shared goals and outcomes really difficult, if not impossible. Different worldviews direct different understandings of the good life, of human flourishing. If we have different understandings of what human flourishing actually is, then getting us there is actually going to go in a million different directions. Now, at an extremely rudimentary level, we might say that justice is merely giving people what they are due. Giving people what they are due. If you work at a job for an agreed-upon rate with your employer, it would be unjust for your employer to then pay you less than what was agreed upon. 
And if you take from others, it would be unjust for the authorities to allow you to keep taking from others. Justice, then, would be to give you what you are due. Even if you're the one taking from other people, justice is giving you correction, even giving you punishment. That includes giving back or paying back what you took. But, as Tim Keller says, biblical justice is not, first of all, a set of bullet points or a set of rules or guidelines. It is rooted in the very character of God, and it is the outworking of that character, which is never less than just. That is, we could say that God acts justly, but he is more than that. He is just. God is just. And so any action of justice is just a mere overflow of his character. Now, many of you have read or listened to various definitions, various understandings of justice, of righteousness lately and over the last year, uh, some that are more or less similar. But I have, I have found Andy Nacelli to be succinctly helpful here. He says that justice, according to the Bible, is making righteous judgments. That is, justice is doing what is right according to the standard of God's will and character as he has revealed it in his word. A third of the 125 times that the word justice appears in the Old Testament, the word righteousness is right next to it. In fact, we just read from it in our profession of faith. There's justice, judgment, justice, and righteousness going on right next to each other. The standard of justice is not contemporary community standards. It is God's righteousness. Justice and righteousness begin and end with God's own character. So the word justice in the Bible is actually interchangeable with judgment. It is the noun form of the verb judge. Justice is fundamentally the activity of judging or making a judgment. So we can define justice according to the Bible as making a judgment according to God's righteousness, or more simply, making righteous judgments. This definition has two components, a a standard, God's will and nature as scripture reveals, and an action. Applying the standard or making a judgment on the basis of that standard, that is doing justice. And so King Solomon illustrates what it looks like to wisely make a righteous judgment. After Solomon discerns which women was telling the truth about her baby, all of Israel then stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to what? To do justice. He had the wisdom of God, that is God's character and understanding that then flowed out into righteous judgments. Doing justice is applying a righteous Judgment. Even Proverbs 29 says, by justice, that is by applying righteous judgments, a king builds up the land. The land is built up, is flourishing by uh, those in charge making righteous judgments. Now we'll think more next week about what it means for us as a people, uh, together as a church, to pursue justice. But the point of all of this is that justice is at the same time broader and narrower than the way that it is most often used culturally today in our own vernacular. Justice is broader in the sense that actually anything that is contrary to God's character is unjust. Jesus applies this truth not just to your actions, but to your heart, to the motive behind the actions, to your thoughts. It is not good enough 
to merely consider yourself a a righteous or a just person because you've never murdered someone. Like, high five, man. You've just done what, like, you've done more than what, like, 0.01% of the population has done. Wonderful. But if you have hated someone in your heart, the same dark headwaters of murder, of hatred, of injustice are bubbling in your heart. It is not good enough to consider yourself completely holy and good because you have never committed adultery or never had an affair. If you have used someone in your mind, in your imagination, you are still equally sin-sick, still equally unjust in your thoughts. You're maybe just a coward, too afraid of the consequences of your actions. But the motive, the heart, the desire is still there. Injustice. The righteousness of God, though, confronts not just our unjust actions, but the heart of the action. If you were with us on Easter, when we were thinking through Psalm 24, where David is thinking about those who have clean hands, actions, and pure hearts. Motive internal and external, alignment to the very character of God. And so it will not do to say that you are not guilty of racism because you have never used the N-word. It will not do to say that you are not guilty of racism merely because you have a few friends of different ethnicities, all the while still harboring deep suspicion or resentment in your own heart. And again, this doesn't have to be towards people of different races, But any time that we are tempted and then actually acting upon, even within our own hearts, towards justifying our lack of love or our lack of giving dignity towards any other human being for any number of other reasons, we are all guilty of the sin of impartiality. This is something that plagues us to the bottoms of our hearts as human beings trying to define and categorize those who are other than us and are actually kind of deserving of our disdain or at least our indifference. Now, if that's true, that this is something that is deep within all of us as humans, this is actually really bad news. And that news can then become very debilitating if there is no solution offered amongst the swirling condemnation both within our own hearts and then culturally heaped upon us. I recently heard an interview with one Australian leader who works with teenagers, and he was asked uh, what the three biggest issues are that teenagers face today. And the first two that he gave were actually quite predictable. He said uh, the first two issues that Australian teenagers are, are dealing with today, as he observes, is identity and purpose. That is, who am I and what should I do? That's Teenagers have been thinking through those questions for centuries. But the third issue is something that I think just as recently as 10, maybe even five years ago, wouldn't have even been on our social radars. The third thing that causes the the greatest amount of stress and anxiety amongst Australian teenagers, according to this guy, is forgiveness. A culture that tells you that if you craft yourself, If you craft your image, your personal brand in the right way, then all will work out for you. But then, if and when you get it wrong, even momentarily, even when you're a kid, you've only got yourself to blame and there is no way out. 
Others have considered that today's culture is all propitiation and no expiation. These are big theological words, but propitiation is that of suffering for sin. It is receiving judgment, punishment for evil. Expiation is the sending away of sin. Think about the Old Testament scapegoat, that the sins of Israel, the entire nation, are loaded up on this one goat, and then that goat is then sent out into the wilderness. So today, we've got propitiation down. We're really good at that. You will suffer if you break the cultural codes, the moral norms, and in fact, the moral norms of today's society are daily evolving into something that is way more public and stringent than perhaps the kind of thing that we were told to hate in books like The Scarlet Letter. But there is no way in today's culture for your sins to be forgiven, for your sins to go away from you as far from the west is from the east. They will travel with you forever. God, in Isaiah 1, condemns. He rejects. Israel's worship because it is only external. It is not aligned with a heart of love for God, a heart of love for neighbor. But the good news of the cross of Christ is that Jesus is both our propitiation and our expiation. He receives and absorbs the wrath and the suffering for our sin on our behalf, and then he sends it away forever. The love of God in Christ is that he now chooses to remember our sins no more. Both our external and brazen sin and our internal and secret sin. We sang earlier, Christ has defeated some of our sins. Christ has defeated every sin. And if that is true, then now cast all your burdens now on him. Oh, praise him. Oh, praise him. Hallelujah. Come now, God tells Israel. Come now, let us reason together in Isaiah 1. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. The gospel, perhaps, is coming today as better news in today's culture, especially to teenagers, to young 20-year-olds, than it has perhaps in decades, because it is a worldview that actually offers forgiveness, actually offers peace, actually offers security for weak and feeble-minded people. And yet, he has called us out of sin and into righteousness, into the very character of God to live selflessly and to love sacrificially. We'll have more to think about and apply to ourselves here next week, both individually and corporately as a church, but actual righteousness in God's people should both confront sin and others, but it also confronts the own sin in our own hearts and minds. If we're really honest, we must say that our own story is often True that we are kind of the hero doing the right thing, but more often we're the villain. Daily, we are all the while choosing to fight for justice and then ignoring our own faults, ignoring our own sin. We might even identify more with Walter White than we'd like to admit. 
justifying our own thoughts, justifying our own actions, just because of the bad circumstances out there. It's understandable why I would act or think or believe or feel in this way. This must be right in here because all that out there is so bad. That is not righteousness. That is not justice. And it is not the character of God. But while biblical justice is more broad than what is applied to these days, anything that is contradictory to God's character is actually unjust. Biblical justice is at the same time more narrow. More narrow in the sense that it confronts actual injustice, not just what feels like injustice. It calls us to truly seek or execute justice. Now I'll try to add a level of nuance to that in just a minute, but in Isaiah 1, God condemns Israel's worship because even though they were doing all the right things, they were keeping the letter of the law and keeping the uh, sacrificial and the worship system just as God had given them, God was rejecting it though because they were ignoring and exploiting the weak and the vulnerable. Here's the thing though. They were doing this, exploiting the weak and the vulnerable, not just personally and individually, but even corporately, nationally, and dare we say, even structurally. So let's move into our second point now, that righteousness confronts personal sin, but now secondly, truly confronting societal structures. Isaiah calls Israel, he calls them in Verse 4 of chapter 1, he calls them a sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity. Now, does that mean that every single person in Israel equally exploited and ignored widows and orphans? Surely not. But the sins of the leadership and perhaps even the sins of just the majority are translated and even then reckoned to the whole. Other prophets like Ezra in the book of Ezra, chapter 9 and 10, and then Nehemiah and Nehemiah 1 and Daniel in Daniel chapter 9, all of these men pray prayers of repentance to God on behalf of the people. They are praying prayers of deep regret, of mourning, of repentance on behalf of the people. They're praying with some indication that each of them bore some responsibility for the sins of the nation, either by being blind to the sin in the the past, not confronting it earlier, or perhaps even participating in this national sin. Similarly, Similarly, we recently have been going through the book of Acts. We've seen Peter and John in the book of Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5 charge the people of Judea and Jerusalem with delivering over Jesus to Pilate. Did every single person in Jerusalem do this? Did every single person in the area of Judea do this? No. And he charges them with crucifying Jesus. Well, clearly it was Roman soldiers who had done the actual hammering. Now, if that sounds weird, you haven't heard the half of it. All of humanity in the story of the Bible is actually implicated in the sin of Adam. We follow along in the sins of Adam. We are guilty and complicit in our own actions and thoughts, and yet we are implicated by his sin. 
And if that doesn't seem fair or just, then you'll just really hate the gospel. Because the gospel says that if you would but trust in the saving work of Jesus on the cross, then your sin gets taken from you and gets reckoned to Jesus, while the righteousness and obedience of Jesus gets reckoned to you. Jesus becomes the just and the justifier through his vicarious or his substitutionary work on his people's behalf. Now, none of these things, none of these examples are direct apples to apples comparisons to like contemporary American racism or something. Israel is the covenant people of God in the Old Testament. The prophets aren't necessarily confessing every sin for every single human being that lived in the ancient Near East or something. And the Adam, Jesus, either you are in Adam or you are in Jesus dynamic, acts kind of like the kings of Israel, that the righteousness or the sin, the obedience or the disobedience of the king then gets federally or corporately given out to his people. But the Bible does have categories for you both mourning and even moving to rectify the sin and evil of others, even if you were not the one who was directly responsible. What am I saying? That if you are a white person today, that you share an equal guilt of the wickedness of slave traders or the wickedness of reprehensible Jim Crow racists? No. But now with courage to look squarely into the past and to call wicked what was actually wicked. And not just theoretically and with individual people, but institutionally even. The history of our own denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, along with many other denominations and religious structures is plainly awful, reprehensible. The history of governmental laws, mandates, orders, decisions in our country has often been motivated consciously or unconsciously by racism at worst, or just partiality and favoritism at its best. And that is not like white guilt or wokeness talking. It's just a plain reading of history. You can even read many of the plainly written down motivations behind some of these decisions and structures. These realities should grieve us. That such partiality has existed in the past should actually cause us to be suspicious. Not cynical, but suspicious of ways in which partiality has affected the present. And suspicious of how present forms of partiality might actually then affect the future. Again from last week, if the Reformation category of total depravity is actually true for us as individuals, why in the world would we not be so suspicious of the ways in which depravity might work its way into even structures? Individual humans who are sinful then are making decisions. Why wouldn't that happen? George Yancey again, who, by the way, George Yancey is one about the most level-headed folks that I've ever read on any of this. He's a Christian. He's also a sociologist, so he tends to follow actual data. But 
Uh, and again, uh, George Yancey, before I say what I'm about to say, what he has written, Yancey has written, even this week, he has written criticisms um, passionately and alarmingly of some of the solutions that are being offered by folks like Robin DiAngelo or Ibram X. Kendi. Uh, I would commend his criticisms and his concerns with some of these kinds of writings to you. Uh, you can just Google George Yancey uh, with those names. But Yancey says this about the enduring legacy of some forms of structural injustice. He says, pretend that we are going to have a mile race a year from now. I tell a third of the class about the race and hire a trainer for them. For another third of the class, I tell them about the race six months later, but I do not hire for them a trainer. But I do advise them that they may want to work out on their own to get ready for the race. The last third of the class, I call them the morning of the race and tell them that it is time to run. Assuming that the class is randomly divided into thirds, we know what will happen in the race, do we not? On average, the first group will do the best, followed by the second group, and the third group having the worst average times. Oh, there may be someone in the third group who is a natural miler and who happens to be running on a consistent basis anyway. He may rub, run a sub-four-minute mile and run away from everyone else, but he will be an anomaly. On average, having a trainer and time to train means you will perform better. The presence of some individuals of color who have enjoyed wild success does not mean that institutional racism is a myth. It merely means that some individuals have been able to overcome the barriers that inhibit people of color and that society's distaste for overt racism allows them to enjoy the fruits of that success. The effects of structural injustice over decades, if not centuries, can be and is often incredibly difficult to overcome. And so it can be heartless, if not naive, when many white folks who have benefited from generation upon generation upon generation of wealth, of education, and of stability to expect that all other people have the exact same opportunities as you. It should cause us deep pain to hear stories of the kind of social or judicial treatment that many of our neighbors of color have experienced or ongoingly experience. Christians ought to care about structures and systems that are just and that are actually becoming more just. Now we'll talk more about the what and the how next week. But all of this then focuses the flashlight on that pesky but indispensable little word of truly. Righteousness truly confronts the injustices of personal sin and societal structures. It can be understandable. It can be an understandable reaction when uh, centuries of discrimination are behind us as we are reading and thinking about these things to then spot any present disparity and, in, and then equate it with injustice. In his very helpful little book, Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth. By the way, uh, after next Sunday, we'll probably either make a blog post or send you all an email with a reading list. Uh, any book that I have mentioned or any blog post that I have mentioned in these three weeks, we'll get to you um, so that you can read some of these things for yourself. 
But Thaddeus Williams says that many who desire a more socially just world follow three steps. Step one, spot an equal outcome, or spot an unequal outcome. Step two, interpret that unequal outcome as damning evidence of a racist or sexist system. Step three, overthrow that system. And then, if these steps are adopted by Christians, then step four, identify overthrowing that system as a so-called gospel issue and indict fellow believers of white supremacy if they do not join you in the fight. William says, on this road, we learn to assume the worst. We accept the most damning conclusions about others, often at the expense of both facts and biblical charity. He says, take one particular unequal outcome that made the headlines around the turn of the millennium. On the New Jersey Turnpike, more black drivers were, than white drivers were pulled over and were written up for speeding tickets. Step one, unequal outcome identified. Then came step two. Take that finding as evidence that the system of the New Jersey traffic law enforcement is racist. Many were content to go then from there to step three and launch a justice crusade against the state troopers. In today's American Christian context, many would happily then go to step four to proclaim that the Christian community's failure to address this systemic injustice of racism on the New Jersey Turnpike serves as evidence of a truncated gospel or white supremacy within the church. But then, he says, came the Public Services Research Institute's Speed Violation Survey of the New Jersey Turnpike. Final report. Researchers used high-speed cameras and a radar gun on 38,747 drivers to get to the bottom of the issue. The study found that in the southern segment of the turnpike, where the speed limit is 65 miles per hour, 2.7% of black drivers were speeders, compared with 1.4% of white drivers. Among drivers going faster than 90 miles per hour, though, the disparity was even greater. The study concluded that black people made up 16% of the drivers on the turnpike and 25% of the speeders in the 65-mile-per-hour zone, where complaints of profiling have been most common. The researchers then pointed out that demographic research has shown that the black population is younger than the white population, and as we all know, younger drivers are more likely to speed. This is not a breakthrough. It is common knowledge that older people drive slower. This does not mean that there is no such thing in the world as racial profiling, only that in this particular case, factors other than race easily accounted for the disparity. Now, I gave you that tedious example to just say that this is just but one example of thousands, of perhaps millions of disparities that we might see around our country and in the world. Now, there are many examples where real sin, where real injustice still reigns. We should get upset and then, as Christians, actively seek the reform of these areas. But the reality is that some individuals and some individual cultures actually have different values and priorities. Just the same as teenagers and those in their 80s. People of different walks of life have different values and priorities. To give you one economic example, if I picked 10 of you and gave you each $100,000, don't ask me how I got that money. I gave you each $100,000, all 10 of you. 
And then I came back a year later. This is not, I'm not Jesus in this parable, uh, coming back to see what you've done with my money. But uh, I came back a a year from now to find out what you did with your $100,000. The disparities would be wild. Some of you might have spent it, all of it. Some of you might have spent some, saved some, invested some. Some of you might have saved and invested it all. Some of you might have just given it all away. Thaddeus Williams says that different people with different priorities, making different choices, will experience different outcomes. Disparity isn't necessarily evidence of oppression or injustice. As heartless as this might sound, poverty might not even be evidence of injustice. It certainly might be. But we should confront injustice, but righteousness truly confronts true injustice. Truly, meaning we must do better than merely arming ourselves with good intentions. Last week, we thought about how the law of unintended consequences is actually beginning to backfire as so, as so many so-called diversity trainings are actually creating uh, a generation of new racists. But while I'm no economist or expert historian on the 20th century, LBJ's Great Society program of the mid-1960s, while as admirable as it was, and it did produce many good things, among other things, he this, the Great Society cut the poverty rate of African Americans in half in just five years. That's admirable. And yet, the Great Society also helped to create the urban housing projects, to create the drug, the drug crisis of the 1980s. Policies and programs always have consequences, some good and some bad. This reality has caused us, as well as many, if not most, other evangelical churches in America to kind of mostly ditch the short-term mission trip as service project mentality that many of us grew up in the 1990s and the early 2000s with. We were all in youth groups in the late 90s that were going to third world countries to do service projects. But then books like When Helping Hurts came out to show that the good intentions of American Christians were actually undercutting local economies. We're actually harming the witness of local churches there. We must do better than to just merely arm ourselves with good intentions. So in all of these extremely complex discussions and even problems, we Christians should aim to be the most compassionate, the most empathetic, the best listeners out there, while also seeking to be the most reasonable, the most thoughtful, the most rational, Numbers and statistics are really, really helpful for making big-picture conversations, making big-picture policy. But for instance, when the death of a black person comes at the hands of a police officer, numbers and statistics can often be used as like an explanatory force field to understand why black people actually shouldn't be all that upset. This ignores the collective we that many, if not most, in the black community feel that you, perhaps if you are a white person, that you might not feel, that you likely do not feel when some white person is killed in Ohio. You do not feel the same collective we. 
It also ignores the collective memory and pain and distrust activated in people of color, especially black Americans at the hands of those wielding power. It's best to just become a really, really good listener. Unlike Job's friends who came in with fully formed opinions and explanations. Unlike that well-meaning friend of yours when a loved one of yours had just died who came, this well-meaning friend came in and reminded you of Romans 8.28. That God works all things for the good of those who love him. Is that true? Yes. Was that the most helpful thing to be reminded of at that moment? Probably not. Probably the most helpful thing was just your presence. Just sitting beside you on the couch for hours with a shoulder to cry on. And so we Christians ought to be a people of both and, of speaking and moving against injustice while also not compromising truth, of being people of overwhelming compassion, of being people of overwhelming sacrificial love, while also remaining thoughtful reasonable, and true to the scriptures, just as every issue of disparity is not a gospel issue. In the same way, just because someone mentions words like race or justice or disparity, just because someone says a word like that does not mean necessarily that they are now a socialist or a cultural Marxist or a critical race theorist or they are seeking to undermine the gospel. We must continue to grow and learn and disagreeing with gentleness. And then especially when we're thinking and talking and dealing with other Christians, we need to learn to assume the best in one another. I do not think that that is naive. So next week, what does it really mean to speak and move and seek justice? I realize the irony uh, that that on the screen says, seek, in, seek justice, and I haven't told us how to do that at all. <laughs> uh, so what is the mission of the church? What is the mission of our church? What does it actually mean to care for the widow, the orphan, the foreigner, the poor? What does it mean for us to now actually and really seek and live as just human beings moving toward a more just society? While all the while, Remembering and recognizing that this world will remain unjust until the second coming of our Lord Jesus. In just a second, we are going to sing the song, We Will Feast in the House of Zion. There is always going to be sin and injustice until the return of our Lord, until he comes. And he removes weeping no more. So hang in there. Hang in there for another week. We'll try to tie a bow on some of these things. And by that, I mean not by any means that we will have solved all of the world's problems. But the first thing that we can do is to look in the mirror. The old story is true that uh, of when the London Times posed the question to many prominent writers and authors of the day, they just asked the question, what's wrong with the world today? G.K. Chesterton is said to have responded with a one-sentence essay. He wrote the editors of the Times. He said, dear sirs, I am. Yours, G.K. Chesterton. I am what is wrong with the world today. And that is a great place to, to start trusting in the finished work of Christ and then moving towards justice and love. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. 
Remove the evil of your deeds and from before my eyes cease to do what is evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. But come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful that you have indeed called us to reason with you, to understand the wickedness, the brokenness, the rebellion of our sin, how we have hated you and hated others, how we have congratulated ourselves mere, with mere action, while all the while ignoring our dark hearts, cause us to be people who are transformed by your spirit from the inside out with purer hearts and with cleaner hands, trusting in the work of Christ on our behalf that we might become like him. Cause us to be a just people. People of a reputation of equity, of fairness, of love, of sacrifice to our neighborhood and our community around us. Cause this justice to be a compelling and attractive lighthouse of the gospel, a, a overflowing of your character to the nations. Father, we repent of our sin, cause us to see it more clearly. Search our hearts, O God, that we might know you and trust you and love you all the more. For your glory, for our good, and for the glory of the world around us, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.